The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Uncanny Savannah Edition. It's Wednesday, July 24th, 2019. On today's show, The Lion King, uh, the Disney animated film and later Broadway puppet show, has been revived via a sort of digital photorealistic remake. It's directed by Jon Favreau and features the voices of Donald Glover and Beyonce. We'll be joined by Slate alum and uh, New York Times editor Aisha Harris to discuss And then TikTok is the hugely popular app for making and sharing short videos. We discuss with our old intern, token millennial, and chief frenemy of the program, Daniel Schrader. (laughs) Joining me... (laughs) And finally, Russell Crowe plays Roger Ailes, creator of Fox News and the Showtime Limited, based on the Gabe Sherman biography of Ailes, the loudest voice in the room. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner, who is deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia, hey. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is a Slate's phone critic. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Steve. Um, one addendum you may notice that now I sound faint and bad. That's because that's the recording of my telephone. Uh, the reason we're using that rather than my usual crystal clear tones is because I forgot to hit record. So I will snap into stereophonic focus at some point later on in the show, but that's why I sound like this now. It's because I'm an idiot. Apologies. The Lion King is the latest piece of Disney mega IP to be revived. In this instance, uh, it's using a now highly developed CGI technique to render Simba, Mufasa, uh, the the meerkat, the, you know, on and on and on in hyper-realist fashion. Uh, To those who may not know, uh, The Lion King tells the story of a young lion prince and his journey that he must take in order to come into his own majesty. Uh, It has a palace intrigue, a plot featuring the Lion King's ever-resentful brother Scar and his hyena henchman. Uh, It's broken up with comic relief from a meerkat and a warthog. This iteration is new not only for using cutting-edge digital technology, but as Dana points out in her review, uh, this animal kingdom has been recoded as black using black actors to voice major characters uh, principally Donald Glover and uh, as we'll see Queen Bee, Beyonce Uh, let's listen to a clip this gorge is where all lions come to find their roar all lions? even my dad? even Mufasa came here when he was your age refused to leave until his roar could be heard above the rim all the way up there? That's when you know you found it. With a little practice, you'll never be called a cub again. Watch this. You'll get it, Simba. Just takes time. I'll check on you later. Dad will be so proud, won't he? It's a gift he'll never forget. All right, to discuss the new uh, version of The Lion King, we're joined by Aisha Harris, of course, Slate alum and now New York Times editor. Aisha, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, and I think we have to say, and Aisha, like Disney super freak, is that a fair qualification? I feel like that's part of why we wanted your expertise on this on this movie. That that seems fair. I, <laughs> I love and and criticize all things Disney. Um, so yes, I Super Freak is 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 accurate. <laughs> yeah, that's why you are our dream guest for the Lion King. I can't wait to talk about it with you. I even got engaged at Disney World. So yeah, there you go. Oh, oh my god! Wow. All right. Well, we got to keep all of this banter in. No cutting any of that. So I am not a Disney Super Freak. So Aisha, I'm going to defer very rapidly to you. You clearly you must have seen. 
the original. Uh, you were you sort of. I mean, I'm just gonna just throw this out there. Were you sort of age appropriate when the original movie came out? I, I mean, my math math is not good, but yeah, absolutely. I was right in this uh, the the prime age. I was six when this movie came out. Um, I think it's the only movie that my parents ever took us to see twice in the theaters when I was a kid. Um, just because they, I I think they we loved it so much, and they also like liked it so much uh it was it was a second broadway show i ever saw i saw the stage version um maybe a few years later like right when it came out and i listened to the soundtrack i know like i could tell when i was watching the beginning of circle of life of this movie that it, it was basically a shot for shot remake uh down to like the exact sort of the the rhythm of the the shots and the edits and the cuts and while the song sounded slightly different because obviously a different person was singing circle of life it still felt like i was just watching the planet earth version yeah, <laughs> of, a shot for shot recreation yeah. as the trailer was too. yes yes exactly so i was the prime age i've seen this movie countless times and um it's one of my favorites so i <laughs> as someone who has not been too keen on these remakes that disney has been doing over the last few years of their animated movies all of which i grew up watching um you know aladdin last or uh, aladdin earlier this summer um beauty and the beast and Cinderella. I was not excited about this. And uh, it did not uh, live up. To, it did not. It Actually, I take that back. It lived up to my expectations that I was not going to like it. <laughs> right. It met the low bar that you had set for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now, like some caveats. There are moments that I like that maybe we can get into later. But I, I definitely think overall this just felt like a needless remake that kind of slowed things down a bit and also felt like there was a flatness to it. Mm. Um, and while I thought a lot of the voice vocal performances were good, especially of the young Simba, um, I, I felt like the animation was too photorealistic to like comprehend in the way or to um, translate in the way that the hand drawn animation of the original does so well of like the facial expressions and the eyes and Everything about it just fell kind of flat for me. I feel like we have to to talk about the animation and how it looked before we talk about anything else, because it seems like everyone is tripping up on that, whether they come to it like you, Aisha, with this, you know, this passionate feeling about the original or just, hey, here's, here's a movie about singing lions, right? I mean, a lot of kids will be coming to this for the first time. And the animation is just so strikingly weird. I mean, even for people who are now used to, for example, Andy Serkis-style performance capture technology or, you know, digitally-aided technology of some kind, or um, even the, the the recent Jungle Book that, that combined, you know, digital animation with a human being. There's just something so strange about seeing these animals that are created in camera and only in camera. You know, it's not as even as if footage of existing lions and work warthogs and meerkats was manipulated in some way. This just all happened in a completely digital space. And uh, and that combined with, as you say, some of the vocal performances being somewhat flat, just gave it this strange feeling of taxidermy, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it was a taxidermied Lion King or, or animatronic or something. Did you feel that, Steve, Julian, Steve, did you feel that kind of deadness in the animation? Or do you think that that's something that we're projecting on it because of our nostalgia for the old 2D style? Uh, Dana, I can be the control group here because I've never experienced The Lion King in any other format. Uh, this is my first encounter with the IP, as it were. And um, I found the movie weird 
uh, alienating and inert uh, throughout and therefore sort of forced, right? It's like to the extent it was trying to take on some life and um, and narrative thrust, I, I felt like it was just a sweat act. Like it was just a kind of a little... Um, exhausting when it tried to be really funny or or um, or or portentously meaningful. Um, so that's where I came out. Oh Julie, my god! You. I can't even imagine seeing this movie having not seen the original and just being like, "What on earth? What <laughs> is this?" Yeah, exactly. Because the thing that the thing that this uh, adaptation, whatever remake, exposes is how Arya Aisha like not great the plot is of the original one um i mean it, it it just isn't i don't think i think it's probably my least favorite of that run of like heralded early 90s disney animation and i'd be curious to hear kind of what you loved about it aisha but you know it's it's as has been described in many of the reviews like hamlet with animated lions and there's a power struggle and this like little baby is supposed to rule the kingdom, which if you believe in any kind of um, kind of skills based rulership system is like hard to root for. Then they like skip over the part of how they rebuild the pride lands, which to me always seemed like it would be the most interesting thing. Like it, it, the plot isn't great. Also Hakuna Matata, I failed to notice in the initial version is like, a bleak and nihilist song didn't realize that didn't realize it was the song yeah. of like giving up on life and and the kind of melancholy of hakuna matata in this version oh my was God. so um kind of like the the um i just felt like twisted distorted violin sound should be playing behind me the whole time i was watching the movie like this is the dark future <laughs> <laughs> like i just I, I was repelled the whole time watching the theater. Here we are. This is Disney. Disney had acquired Fox earlier this year. They now will be responsible for something like 35% of all the movies we see. They um, now apparently have the power to make a movie entirely without actors if they want. They can just do away with, you know, the, the, the kind of flexing of this movie is um, a little scary. I found that technology a lot of a lot has been made of the fact that the technology in in adding this photorealistic layer reduced the expressiveness of the animation, the expressiveness of the faces. I think that is part of what makes it harder to connect with the actually quite thin plot of this movie. But um, it also it's like not the uncanny valley. It's like the deep fake movie. Like you, it's so fake it looks real. You forget that it's fake. But then the unsettledness of being certain that it's fake because you're watching like Hamlet on the Serengeti with lions is its own different kind of uncanniness. It's not the like, oh, this this doesn't look real and I'm unsettled by the visual gap. It's like this looks so real and the discordance with my knowledge that it cannot be real is a different kind of uh, somebody smarter than me needs to come up with a better phrase for that. But anyway, I was it was like deep the deep fake valley. Um, the Disney fear. And then also what this movie made me do was crave a sequel. I was like, why couldn't they have used all this technology to like do, you know, Simba's first few years in charge? Like I, I would, I would be like, this is fine. This is cool. I actually really liked the jungle book. I thought it was pretty good. Um, like I don't, I don't object to the use of this technology, even though I'm making it sound very dark here. Just like why remake this exact movie at this exact time? Like the, the, the kind of mim self mimicry, like just make a sequel. That's fine. I li I really liked hearing Beyonce and Donald Glover's voices. I I thought their characterizations were good. 
like let's have them cavort and like rule a kingdom together and see how that goes. Great. I've already gotten into trouble with Beyonce fans, but I mean, I love her, so I can criticize her. Her vocal, not that great. Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of agree on both her and Donald Glover. Yeah, actually, they, they didn't seem like fully in it in a way. I don't know. I mean, Beyonce can do a lot of things incredibly well that yes. I have seen. She cannot act yeah. for the screen. Yeah. No, I mean Donald. For I give Donald Glover a little bit more of a pass just because that character is supposed to be sort of like that. Like you said, Julia, like. The whole point of Hakuna Matata and that whole section of of Simba being away from Pride Pride Rock is that like he checks out completely, and I got this sort of like Atlanta version of D- Donald Glover. Like this is weird. I'm going to like give. I'm going to give like a. I don't know. Not a. He's not. He's not a very exuberant performer. Um, at least when it comes to acting, usually. Um, when he's on stage, it's a different thing. But I thought Beyonce, who is supposed to be the force in a way besides Mufasa's spirit who like wills Simba to go back to and take his rightful place like there's just a disconnect there between like what she's saying and like what she's saying like how she's saying it and I don't think it worked but one thing I thought about a lot hearing the different degrees of investment in voice acting in this also we have Chiwetel Ejiofor as Scar who I thought was great I thought he was really good and that was one of the few characters that seemed mm-hmm. to actually have yes. some some dimension also totally. I have to say the comic relief guys yes, were great they were even though the, the animation was somewhat bothersome right like Hakuna Matata is just not as fun to watch when animals are doing realistic things like running across savannas instead of swinging from vines and you know going crazy um, those two guys were great and I would I would watch a Lion King one and a half sequel with Billy Eichner and, and Seth Rogen as those characters but oh really what, but oh, can really? I, let me You're just finish the, com- the comedy of Billy Eichner just noting it <laughs> I well they were funny <laughs> wait I, I don't like Billy Eichner's man on the street routine but I now follow him on Twitter and I think he's very funny and seems like a genuine darling person I'm totally into Billy Eichner as a human being I just don't like his man on the street routine but wait just to finish my thought about the voice characterizations it just made me think about how voice acting is, is such a different craft from just acting right and the fact that you can do one does not necessarily mean you can do the other and that there has to be a learning curve there so if you start like Beyonce did as not even primarily an actor in the first place and then you have to get to that next level of having only your voice as your instrument you know it's just it's not a guarantee that everyone is going to get to the same place and you really really feel that across the cast of this movie well you also hear that it's her and and it exposes the weakness of the overall plot in terms of gender which I mean I don't really brook the argument that because women lions lady lions really rule pride it's sexist that the lion king doesn't have the lady lions in charge or whatever like fine it's a story tell your story but just having beyonce with all of the like clout and run the worldiness and the sort of theatricality of dominance that is part of beyonce just be like oh gosh i better stand by and watch my land get ruined until i scamper off with the help of some male birds to like find the rando kid who supposedly can fix this better than me it's like what like no (laughs) (laughs) well that's one of the many ways in which the story feels really dated now something that we could get away with in 1991 is that when the original came out 94 just feels feels odd now both from that gendered point of view you're talking about and also just the story itself you know there have been so many movies for kids since then and movies for adults too that have questioned that 
uh, that notion of the one, you know, the matrix idea that there's this single person, usually a boy, of course, who's destined to save the world. And we must find that one person and, you know, make him understand the, the burden of his responsibility. That story now, I, just, I think, just rings wrongly with a lot of American audiences. Like, we've seen it too much. We see it for the somewhat sexist um, and also classist kind of endorsement of primogeniture that The Lion King is. Can I ask the one question? Why on earth is the song Can You Feel the Love Tonight staged completely in broad daylight? <laughs> Did that not bother you oh, at I all? I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's It's sort of weird. the love montage. And so first of all, they're singing about the night while it's broad daylight. And also, <laughs> for some reason, even though we have lions whose mouths can move, their mouths don't move during that well, song. Well, that doesn't happen it's in the original It's sort of a music either. video. Is that true? It's also yeah, a music video? In the original, it's kind of done like as more of a montage where like you, they're singing, but you don't see their lips move while they're singing it, which I think might be kind of weird to see. Like, I guess a that sexy combined song. with the photorealism, <laughs> just but... something about like a lion music video. It just, it just felt it really <laughs> took you out of the movie completely. I hadn't realized though that it was broad. Day- You're right. That's. <laughs> I mean, if it's all done in camera, wouldn't it have been simple enough to throw a few stars and a moon in the sky? In the original, it is done at night. Like, I think it starts in like dusk and then it turns like darker and you know there's a whole controversy around the stars having the word uh sex in the <laughs> written in the original That's right yeah although and some some christian groups boycotted the movie in, in back in the day because yeah of that, right? but apparently that's like it's not true um just like all the other many rumors about disney uh inappropriate things hidden in disney movies um but yes <laughs> Hmm. All right, Aisha, it sounds like a somewhat uh, mis, uh, misconceived uh, project, but uh, it was awesome having you on to talk about it. Thanks for coming back to the uh, podcast. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. By the way, I do not want this segment to end without me saying, Dana, I thought your review of The Lion King was really superb. It's so great to have you back in that saddle. Oh, wow. Thanks so much, Steve. That's nice to hear. Yeah, it's beautifully, beautifully rendered. All right. Well, before we go any further, no doubt we have some business. Dana, take it away. Steve, our only business today is to tell our listeners that in Slate Plus, we're going to be talking about what was, for me, one of the transformative cultural events of last week, which was the release of the Cats trailer. I don't usually even watch trailers online. I try to avoid them because I don't want anything about the movie to be spoiled, even sort of the look of it. But the Cats trailer, the day that it launched last week, was so unavoidable. I mean, you could you could bury a hole in the ground and get in it with your eyes blindfolded and you would still be somehow watching the Cats trailer. So we're all going to talk about our reaction to that and uh, anticipation of that um, Andrew Lloyd Webber adaptation to come. If you want to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a way to support us and the journalism that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing our show and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of those shows and many other wonderful benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. TikTok is a short-form mobile video app. It was a huge hit in China and now is one here. It's also sort of, we'll get into this, born out of a successful app called Musical.ly, but has morphed pretty significantly since that era. Um, It is now among the world's most downloaded apps. We are joined by Daniel Schrader, who is a Slate podcast producer, but but most importantly, a um, uh, ex-Culture Gabfest producer, which really launches- Production assistant. Oh, production assistant. So sorry. Was it really called production assistant when you were Well, it was intern and then I turned it into production assistant (laughs) while I was here. So I'm going to go with intern. Um, 
<laughs> All right, great. The man who professionalized interning at yeah. Slate is not going to get his cred. I love my legs being swept out from under me before I even begin this segment. It feels very Culture Gap Fest. I, you know, it reminds me of what it was like to have you as an intern. I mean, <laughs> Daniel Schrader, I'm going to ask you as a uh, young person, how is this different from Vine or YouTube? Well, I think uh, Vine is maybe its uh, closest relative, and it's uh, pretty similar to Vine in that in the like joke fun nature of it in a lot of ways it's uh further from youtube in that like it's youtube can last for any number of uh minutes hours etc cetera, etc cetera. uh tiktok is much shorter than that uh the life of tiktok is the life of a tiktok is much shorter than that of a youtube video um i think that it, it is kind of the spiritual successor to Vine, but uh, is kind of its own unique thing as well. And uh, I, w- I will admit I'm an old young person, so I just lurk. I don't make a lot of Vine. I don't make a lot of TikToks or anything, but uh, I am certainly uh, immersed in the viewing of them. Well, a big difference between this network and Vine is, for one thing, there's not a six second limit on all the videos, right? right? And also, talk about the um, the following structure, or, or in other words, sort of how a feed is built when you when you open a TikTok account that's different from other traditional social social media accounts. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh... I, I definitely don't have a big like YouTube background or anything like that, um, and I wasn't a creator of Vines. But uh, the interesting thing about TikTok to me is how uh, quickly and immediately it is in conversation with everything else on TikTok, it seems. Um, while, yes, it is certainly in conversation with the internet as a whole, that's how we got things like Old Town Road being such a big song and everything like that. It also is uh, insularly, insularly a discussion amongst uh, each other and kind of a desire to go virality uh a desire for virality in the uh, TikTok world, not necessarily in the world in general. And I think part of that is um, uh, the reason that that comes through so quickly is that you can, because it's like a lip syncing app, or at least that's how it started, um, you can steal other people's tracks and use them on your own video and kind of like uh, voice, use someone else's voice as your own and kind of duet with people so you can put their screen on one side and yours on the other and kind of have an interactive thing there. And so it seems very much like all of these TikTokers are talking to each other and um, desiring to just go viral amongst each other. Right. Well, and also my impression from using it just a tiny bit is that when you get on TikTok, you're sort of caught up in the stream of TikTok memes and and sort of viral jokes that are already happening. In mm-hmm. other words, it's not it's not the writer's block of getting on Twitter or Facebook and saying an empty box. What shall I type in it? Right. right? And you also like there's no need to build your own feed like you do on Twitter or on YouTube or anything like that, where you're kind of I I need to choose who I follow to figure out what I want to see. And of course, as you do that, TikTok algorithms de- develop like your sense and kind of put things in front of you that that you might be interested in, but it isn't solely based on um, what you want to look at. Yeah, I mean, logging into this app instead of feeling like you are suddenly going to explore the social platform personalities of a bunch of people you know in your life and then a bunch of random famous people who may have been suggested to you feels instead like going to high school in a dystopian future. Like, I feel like you just see the posturing insecurities of people under 16, like, and their goofiness and their fun. It just feels like hanging out with a bunch of teenagers. And on the initial screen, you see young girls sort of like figure out how to posture their posteriors towards the camera in ways that presumably met them more likes. And you can go back into their 
their archive and see that they were like not as optimal in their first post and then they get more optimal with the butt posture towards the later post and you feel like well this is a bleak fucking vision of the future and then if you start tapping into the challenges that's all on the initial screen it's just hot people but then if you start tapping into the different subcategory challenges, of course, as a former slate editor-in-chief, I liked unpopular opinions, which I now realize is a thing that has crossed over into other uh, fields. But, you know, that's where all the, like, teen geeks are with their acne, like, closely rendered on their webcams and, um, you know, po- positioning themselves against whatever the teen mainstream is. There's a lot of dragging Billy Irish and dragging Friends reruns, apparently. It's like how you are a teen contrarian right now. <laughs> like, oh, sweet little nerdy teen contrarians with this. I love you. <laughs> um, so it felt like anthropological. And then I will say, despite my my concern slash contempt slash sadness about all of the, like, butts and midriffs, um, I am just sort of the like general teen horniness, which is hard to hate, but you're sort of like, ah, I don't need to be here for this. Um, some of them are really funny. Like just the, the genius of making something really funny that's, you know, three seconds long or 11 seconds long or how, how kind of short and abbreviated it is, the, the short form art form of it. I did find myself beginning to like soak up by the time I got past all the butts. That was my journey through TikTok. Yeah, I I think that that's a really common journey. It's uh, you kind of when you are an adult looking at this, you quickly realize, oh, there are some fun, interesting, cute things happening. But then also there are a lot of children on here and uh, I need I should be aware of that. But also it's interesting to think about like this is the place that kids are talking to each other. And um, it's weird to watch them as a a mid 20 somethings guy because uh, I'm this was actually more apparent during the school year than it is during the summer, which is funny. But uh, there are a lot of some of my favorite videos were the high school prank videos, which I, I feel terrible about liking because I would have hated those kids as a high schooler. I would have been like, Ugh, just shut up and let us get back to class. You're being mean to our teacher or whatever. But like watching them as like an outsider, it's fun to be like, oh, that's like those are fun things that shitty kids are doing that I wish I had done as a kid. And um it's kind of fun to see that uh, just like teen joy and uh, ignorance kind of play out until, of course, you uh, run into the issues of like uh, shaming and homophobia and things like that that are very common among children and hard to uh, monitor or uh, police. And so often I just find myself swiping away from any type of uh, teen jokes because I know that they're probably going to be pretty offensive. Um, so I, as my research into this topic, I asked my 16 and 13 year old kids what they think of it. And, um, they had fond memories of musically were a little mystified that that disappeared and got reincarnated as this. And their very firm opinion is that it, that a certain form of, uh, peer group irony is what made TikTok huge and kind of carries it at the same time. They both firmly believe that it's a stale format already for their age group and are kind of moving 
on a little bit. Dana, what did uh, what did what did your child think of this? Well, you know, when we decided we were going to do TikTok as a as a topic, I mean, the, my prior familiarity with it had entirely been that my daughter hates it, and she specifically hates it because her best friend, in her words, got addicted to TikTok some time ago. I think now she's moved on to Korean boy bands and is addicted to that. And obviously, all teenagers are going to be addicted to one thing or another. But I had read some things at the time about TikTok being a uniquely addictive format for kids because of Daniel, as you described, the fact that the content is just provided for you, that you sort of don't have to start anything for yourself. You just surf the wave of whatever meme is going on. And uh, and there was a period where she would go to her best friend's house and come back saying it was no fun at all because all she wanted to do the whole time was make TikTok videos and look at TikTok videos and talk about TikTok videos. And that world is just boring and stupid. I mean, she, my daughter had done Musical.ly when she was little. I mean, eight or 10. I remember Julia sending you some of her funnier. She kind of used it as a comedy format to make, you know, ridiculous pratfalls and things like that, but had already considered that to be outgrown. And so essentially regarded TikTok as a more evil version of that, that it had ensnared her best friend in its in its clutches. So, yeah, I don't think you can, we can uniformly say the teens are loving it because here we have a sample size of three teens who are who are not loving it. Yeah. I mean, I love the idea of kids that are already too cool for TikTok because I know that I am have never been and never will be cool enough for TikTok. And so it's fun <laughs> to see the other side of it. Um, but I, like I think she didn't object to the coolness of it or, or uncoolness as much as just its ability to completely capture the brain of the person using it. Oh, 100%. I like it's one of my new favorite uh, wait for the subway uh, apps now because a subway could take anywhere from three to 12 minutes. And so to open that up, 12 minutes go by and in a blink of an eye, you're like, wait, what happened? I was just watching like six videos when really you were watching like 100 and you didn't even realize. And that's that's kind of the magic of it to me is that you just get sucked in and don't want to leave. But uh, it, it like I remember showing my old roommate uh, TikTok when I f- first started getting into it like six, seven months ago watching it. And yes, I know I'm a very old TikTok um, adherer. So, uh, but I remember watching it with them and us just sitting there for an hour watching, scrolling through TikTok. And it was actually kind of funny because, uh, so my old roommate is a musician and they used to be part of a like music scene in Austin. And uh, we were scrolling through and all of a sudden they heard a song that was being played um, over like a meme, basically like a challenge that had been used over and over. And they were like, wait, I, I know those people. Like, I know that band. That's just like a small little band that nobody's heard of. But like, it's really cool that they're here and they just kept getting passed around. And so that's kind of the interesting thing for me is uh, also that it, it contains like things you don't even realize are uh, things that like children are encountering pieces of culture that like you don't even realize that they're uh, finding these like little niche bands from Austin and stuff like that. But that there might not necessarily be a way for the kid who's using that meme to figure out who that band is and learn more oh, about 100%. them, right? I mean, yeah. it's a very enclosed universe, as I could see, where though, you don't know where what the origin, the source of mo- most of the music is. Though, unless it's been like uh, re- TikTok, I don't know the correct lingo for it, but unless you've taken the like track from someone else with, and it's just like listed as X person's track, it every single TikTok has at the bottom of it like, oh, this is original audio or this is X person's audio. And if it's a song, it's almost always like this is this song or this remix of a song. Like one of my favorites is a remix between um, My Neck, My Back and Ariana Grande's Santa Tell Me. It's a very fun uh, challenge that um, I haven't seen in a while, but is very fun around Christmas time that I highly recommend checking out. 
And by challenge, you mean that there's generally a like a dance moves associated with a certain meme or obviously with Old Town Road, there was the cowboy challenge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to do with sort of enacting some kind of fantasy along with a brief chunk of music and everybody sort of does the same move. Exactly. Yeah. And seeing how you can do it differently or uh, adapt it. Uh, it was fun to watch Old Town Road play out as like these the, these are the meme of people jumping and immediately changing into cowboy outfits. But then people started uh, pl- riffing on that and playing on that. And so it's this like infinitely riffable app where everyone can contribute some sort of play on the joke, which I really appreciate. All right. Well, uh, Daniel, uh, Chief Frenemy, uh, CFOP, uh, or maybe it should, should it be FROP, CFROP, uh, Chief Fr- uh, Frenemy of the program. Thanks for coming back on to talk us through TikTok. Yeah, anytime. Um, I'm happy to come back and talk y'all through the kid things. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. I know what people are going to say about me. I can pretty much pick the words for you, right-wing, paranoid, fat, that's a voiceover by Russell Crowe playing Roger Ailes, creator of and Svengali behind Fox News in an award season uh, weight gain performance. Roger Ailes may have been every liberal's favorite Satan, but he was nothing if not a maestro of television producing. He understood a lot of people sit at home and watch TV during the day and really need something from their television more than mere programming. They need their reality ordered. And Ailes had had two careers, really. He was a TV producer who pioneered daytime chat with The Mike Douglas Show uh, and business TV with CNBC. And he had had another career as a hugely influential Republican strategist. He created Fox to balance out a supposedly, quote unquote, liberal media bias. But really what he was doing was affirming the priors of uh, his audience, no matter how ignorant or prejudicial. People don't want to be informed, says Crow as Ailes. They want to feel informed. Let's listen to a clip. Rog, you need an appointment. Get on the schedule. Obama's victory is on you. And you have made yourself a target for manipulation. Hardly. This guy's not a president. He's a community organizer, which makes him a communist. He has no blood understanding of this country. And that's something Fox was in the middle of exposing before you tied my hands. There is nothing to expose. Besides, I endorsed McCain. Way too late, Rupert. Way too late. Your coverage was irresponsible. Do I come in here and tell you how to do your job? No. Do I come in here with my problems? Well, you're here now. Twelve years I've been loyal to you. And I have delivered to you the number one news network in this country. No one else could have done that. And I value your contributions. My contributions, which are roughly around $500 million a year in profit, based off my ideas, my formats, and my editorial decisions. I know you and your wife think I'm some kind of paranoid right-wing nutjob. But you Wendy and I... I'm the but... same paranoid nutjob who is lining your pockets. All right. Well, uh, Julio, let's start with you. That's uh, it's really hammering home some 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 talking points about the life and career of Roger Ailes. What did you make of this uh, production? Can I request that our producer just go back and pull what I said about the movie Vice and then insert it and sub out <laughs> the phrase, the loudest voice for the phrase Vice? I mean, it's not actually accurate because I think the the badness of Vice made me actively angry because of how insulting Adam McKay's aspect toward the viewer was um, and just the kind of fundamental condescension of it I don't see here but the blankness underlying a great performance which we had with Vice and with Christian Bale's interpretation of Dick Cheney as posited through a script that did not actually get at the why of 
why Dick Cheney is who he is and did what he did, I feel exactly the same about this TV show. And I think the underlying source material here is, in fact, deeply re- reported. And Gabe Sherman, you know, did did just absolutely extraordinary reporting work, figuring out how Fails acquired power, what he did with it when he had it. Um, and so many of the shocking details in the series are actually true and based on, on Sherman's really epic reporting. But somehow, when you're in a biopic structure, which this feels like, the animating question is not, how did our world change because of the machinations of a person? It's why, who is this person and why did they do what they do? And these, the, this, this show does not answer that at all. And as a result, the portrait of the machinations feels less than satisfying, I think. Um, that was my view. What do you guys think? Did you like it? I mean, the show that I kept thinking of while watching it, or the prior cultural product, was not uh, Vice, but was Succession, the the fictional HBO series that's you know supposedly based mainly, but not entirely, on the Murdoch family about a, a dynasty of press controlling <laughs> terrible people, um, and that is a much much better show than this show. I mean, in, I would infinitely recommend Succession over this show. But that said, not having read Gabriel Sherman's book, I'm sure that reading Gabriel Sherman's book is a more um, thorough and and scholarly way to learn about how Roger Ailes took over Fox News and created the kind of toxic stew of paranoia that he did there. But in lieu of reading the book, I don't think that the, the miniseries is that bad a way to learn about a piece of media history that I think I only knew about in its its vague, dark outlines. Um, I had one kind of correction, Steve, to, say, to to your comment about the the weight gain awards performance. I think that this is mainly a prosthesis and like oh, rubber, suit. Yeah, yeah, rubber suit that um that Russell Crowe is wearing, which just really shows how far that technology has come since movies in which you know people essentially wearing rubber suits looked like the Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz, and you could just see the wrinkles where they were plastered on. Both he and Sienna Miller, who plays Beth Ailes, Roger Ailes' wife, have just been transformed through makeup to to look exactly like those people. And it's it's strangely unnerving. The same thing with Simon McBurney, who you heard as Rupert Murdoch in that clip. I think he's extraordinary in that role. He looks and sounds exactly like Rupert Murdoch to a degree that one of the reviews that we read in, in prep for this segment called an animatronic performance. You know, it's as if he's a <laughs> robot of Rupert Murdoch. Um, but that kind of uncanniness of just cr- recreating the exact look to me is something that <clears throat> to some degree takes you out of the story. That said, I'm really enjoying this. I've watched all four episodes so far, and I think I'm going to watch it through to the end. I find it trashily enjoyable. I agree, Julia, that it doesn't really provide enough background on how Ailes became the person he was, because it begins in 1995 when he's already a middle-aged man about to launch the network. And we only learn about his childhood, not even through flashbacks, just through a couple stories that he tells about it. Mm -hmm. But I guess to me... It's somewhat worth it for just the lurid behind the scene glimpse it gives us at a, a really, really important force in our culture that honestly, I just try to turn away from. I mean, my partner sometimes watches Fox News just to sort of see how that part of the world is is functioning and sort of how that that branch of media uh, is making people think. And I find it too unnerving and frightening to even watch. So there were a lot of revelations in this for me. I mean, I, well, a couple things. I feel like I have so, so much to say. I hope I can shove it all through the keyhole. Um, I mean, it, essentially after that voiceover segment, it begins with the talking head song Television Man, which to me just did not bode well. It was so on the nose. I mean, it, nothing takes me out of a, uh, a a movie or a TV show more 
efficiently than super on the nose musical selection. Um, and I and and this is just kind of a you know it's hammer 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 home these signal moments in the making of Fox News and the making of uh, Trump's America. Right, that's obviously probably in some ways the most compelling aspect of the show. Um, uh, but but the most compelling aspect of the book, Julia, as you point out, really was getting into the creation of Roger Ailes as a human being. I mean, where he grew up, um, how dark his childhood was. He was left stranded at home as a hemophiliac who often couldn't go to school. It's where he began to connect with and really in some deeper, deeper level kind of cathect, not just with TV, but with daytime TV, understanding what it was like to be stranded, alone, isolated, with the television as your companion. Um, and that turned him into sort of both aspects of his childhood. One turned him into a maestro of at first daytime TV programming and then of course, you know, news programming. But the but the other, this this need to take a very, very dark American childhood and turn it into a highly idealized small town Midwestern childhood through tricks of memory and 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 rhetoric and self-deception. Um, you know, in order to create a kind of super idealized America, the man had to suppress an enormous amount of dark impulses and memories and these two things together made this kind of really i mean i I mean satanic is obviously putting it in a somewhat um extreme form but you know to create a person who (laughs) really really deformed american public um discourse for a generation and you know i mean you could you know the second episode begins with his decision to frame i mean begins the morning of 9-11 he roger ailes like every american was completely shocked and and morally and spiritually dislocated by the violence uh, of the act and um uh, uh but it was you know ailes who made the decision in cooperation first of all ailes independently made the decision to frame it as a civilizational war uh for which you know vengeance was was you know a, 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 you know vengeance had to be sought and then collaborated with the Bush administration to make sure that the Iraq war was seen as a a, a proper and just response to the um you know to the a terrorist attack I mean the man could be responsible in some respects for hundreds of thousands if not in excess of a million gratuitous deaths in the Iraq war I mean the guy is a villain of a of huge proportions and and what's interesting to me is just you know he he himself must have had at at a deep level an oppositional personality a need to posit an utterly hateful mainstream liberal establishment that that's the only way you can justify being like Roger Ailes and it, he was so connected to that in his own gut that hatred in his own gut his sense of a bunch of snobs sitting around uh you know forging a collaboration between the liberal elite and the American people um, that he wanted so desperately to break. Um, and and it's it's the connection between his gut and some streak in the American people that brings together a really complex personal and biographical story with something about the soul of the country, like the sociological soul of the country at that moment. Like the fact that you can put that programming on and it strikes some chord in the American people so that sane people are just constantly put on the defensive and constantly, you know, running around and jumping around trying to compensate for essentially 
an epidemic of misper- of political misperception. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's like kind of really trying to understand how those things come together uh, is what I wanted out of this, and instead you get something that's pretty broadly presented. That said, I'm I'm you know totally compelled by the performances and sort of will commit to watching all of it. I mean, one reason I really want to watch the last three episodes unfold, there's seven in all and there's four that have aired so far, um, is because Naomi Watts comes into the into the show about halfway through as Gretchen Carlson, who was the first of many women at Fox to pursue legal action for sexual harassment against Ailes. And uh, and I'm really curious to see how that story unfolds. I mean, so far in the series, his, his habit of harassing the women around him is presented mainly through this one character, Lori Loon, who actually is in real life suing the show because she doesn't like her representation on it. And uh, and that's a very twisted and sick relationship. But it's just one relationship. It's essentially kind of a mistress, you know, extramarital affair situation. And the idea that he was just simply pawing every woman at the network and putting every single one of them under this lens is something that I think is going to emerge more in the last three episodes. So that Me Too twist, I think, is what's going to take me through the end because I just really want to see Naomi Watts as Gretchen Carlson get her revenge. She's, she's great in the role, by the way. Yeah, I'm interested to see the evolution of that plotline and that performance, and I could see that case for it. I, I don't find myself uninterested to watch the rest of the show. I just felt frustrated by it at the same time. And I also felt that there was a certain obtuseness to the camera work that is intended to depict his lewdness and dismissiveness of women. Like the camera does some of the leering, the camera does... um the camera is doing something weird that doesn't feel to me like it's on the women's side. It is on the women's side, obviously. This this is the story of why Roger Ailes is a monster. But I don't know. I am I alone in that? The 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 representation of what it would feel like to be bullied and harassed as a woman in the workplace by Roger Ailes somehow felt very male in its perspective. Um, that itched at me and and led again to the feeling that this interpretation of a very important chapter of American history and present isn't actually telling me anything interesting about what really happened or why. I think that I may agree with you somewhat so far, but I think that Naomi Watts's entrance into the story has has put a different twist on that. Annabelle Wallace, who plays Lori Loon, is, is is really good in her role, but all she really has to do, I think, Julia, you would agree, is to be this kind of sexualized victim. And there are a lot of really gross scenes of her, you know, being filmed as she kind of performs sexually for, for Roger Ailes. And, uh, and I agree there's a luridness in the presentation of that relationship. But I feel like when Naomi Watts enters the show, and I don't know whether it's because of her performance or because of how that character is written, and just that she's going to be a character who, unlike the Lori Loon character, you know, bre- breaks out of this. There's something really fresh in, for example, the way that she shows her irritation at being touched by other anchors on screen and she brings that to Ailes. He dismisses it. I feel like you see other parts of workplace harassment and what it feels like other than, you know, the most TV friendly, sexy parts. Mm. All right. Well, the show is The Loudest Voice, uh, tells the story of Roger Ailes starring uh, Russell Crowe. Naomi Watts. Uh, Check it out. It's on Showtime. And as always, we are curious to hear what you thought of it. All right, uh, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? 
Stephen, this week I shall endorse a 10-minute segment from uh, CBS News. I think it was actually from a 60 Minutes show that aired recently. That's an interview between Leslie Stahl and Ben Ferenz, who is now my new moral hero in life and is this wonderful man. He's 99 years old. I think when she interviewed him, he might have been a bit younger, but he's now 99. This was a re-airing, I think. And he is the last living judge from the Nuremberg trial. So when the Nuremberg trials happened, he was only 27. He had never tried a case before. And he found himself, because of his history serving in World War II and because of having helped to liberate the camps and having some knowledge of that world, he found himself on the bench uh, judging not the top Nazi brass that we think of as being tried at the Nuremberg trials, but a group of assassins that went through and killed entire cities. It's a horrible, horrible story that's very quickly summed up in a sort of thumbnail way in this 10-minute segment. And it sounds incredibly depressing, but is actually extraordinarily uplifting because of the person that Ben Ferenz is. So after this experience of trying these Nazis at the age of 27, he devoted his life to becoming this um, peace activist, essentially. And he now is seven decades into this career of, you know, being a peace activist, lecturing about history, going around, you know, mediating conflicts. He's just an incredible human. He's this tiny little five foot tall man with an extraordinary amount of energy uh, who talks very philosophically about what it meant to him to have been at those trials and what it taught him about war and how the most important thing to him is to try to to stop war. And when Leslie Stahl comes back at him with a, with a natural question, I think anyone would have asked, you know, do you feel discouraged that after seven decades of doing this work, there is still so much violence and unrest and cruelty and injustice in the world? His answer is just so extraordinary, I can't possibly sum it up. But just watch this 10-minute segment and you will be uh, uplifted and, and feel like a, a better person and want to make the world a better place. I also discovered, though I haven't watched it yet, that there's a whole documentary about Ben Ferenz on Netflix called Prosecuting Evil, The Extraordinary World of Ben Ferenz. So that tells his story, I imagine, in a, a longer way. He was, I think, a first-generation immigrant to the U.S. from a Jewish family. Anyway, he's a great guy. Ben Ferenz is my new guru. Please watch his interview with Leslie Stahl. Oh, wow. That wow. is amazing. That, that sounds amazing. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I would like to endorse two experiences that I had here in Los Angeles in the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I had a fun hooky date day with my husband and we ditched our children and just explored Los Angeles because we never really got to explore this city in the pre-kid way of like, maybe we should stop here for lunch and, oh, this bookstore looks cool. And, you know, just aimlessness, the aimlessness one no longer gets to have as a parent. We we uh, arranged some aimlessness for ourselves. And one of the things we did on our aimless day was go check out the Huntington Gardens in Pasadena, which is this kind of amazing institution that's like if you combined a research library, a botanical garden, and an art history museum and put them all on one verdant campus, that's the that's the Huntington Gardens. And we went because um, my husband has gotten really interested in bonsai and they have a bonsai collection. But on the way to checking out the bonsai collection, we were like, oh, hey, let's pop through the archive. Like I hadn't been in the library part. So we walk in, dark building, you know, put your put your water bottle in your bag, walk into this dimmed room full of crumbly old paper. What is standing in front of us on a stand? The freaking Gutenberg Bible. There's just like a <laughs> Gutenberg Bible just right there, like in the middle on the way to the bonsai. Um, very, you know, it's it's an amazing room of really interesting documents. The Bible I learned, there were, I guess, 175 printed, I think is what it said on the thing that we were reading, um, and f of which 48 still 
survive. And here's one of them. There's a bunch in New York. There's a bunch in Germany. You won't be surprised to learn. There's a bunch in England. There's some all over the world. But it just felt um, miraculous to be in the presence of this seminal object. It was so kind of beautiful. And anyway, so we wandered around, very hot day, checked out the bonsai, wandered hither and thither, eventually went to what had been our destination and the occasion for taking a hooky day, which was a Paul McCartney concert at uh, Dodger Stadium, which had been my birthday gift to my husband. So we make our way to Dodger Stadium, great old ballpark, very crowded, all ages crowd. I thought we would be the youngest people there, but but the the uh, Beatles keep recruiting fans. Um, we get out, Paul McCartney is singing on a stage. We got there a teeny bit late. Uh, and it was the same feeling. It was like, oh, my God, that's the thing. It's the it's the original thing, and it's still there. <laughs> Holy moly. The Gutenberg like, Bible of just, singers. Yeah, or something. There was just this feeling of, like, awe at being in the presence of the original thing that felt very familiar from earlier in the afternoon. Um, and... Paul McCartney, I mean, I recognize this. This will go in the uh, grand Julia Turner tradition of recommending things that are already obviously apparently good to everybody in the whole goddamn world. So what is the point? But if you have never seen Paul McCartney in concert, this was the last stop on this tour. But um, hopefully he will he will plan another tour soon. He does tour frequently. Try to go see one. It's it, the combination between his the, – the depth of the catalog – I mean, just the the number of good songs segueing into good songs um, just became comical at the end. And the number of good songs that weren't even played. Like, I don't think he played yesterday. And it's not like you were oh, thinking, oh, wow, we're really in the dregs of the Paul McCartney catalog. There were great wing songs, great Beatles songs. Even some of the songs from the new album seemed good. Um, and... <laughs> And there also is just, he's just a very funny persona. You know, if you think about, I've seen Mick Jagger play, I've seen Bob Dylan play, each of them is prosecuting some version of cool still into their age, agedness, the elusiveness of Dylan, the like goofy swagger of, of Jagger. Um, and Paul McCartney is just kind of a dope. Like he's, he's, you know, mm. a world historically talented rock star, but he's also just kind of corny and goofy and sweet and uh, i don't know the combination of that with like the the leather energy of of rock is um was very fun and then he did at the very end in a surprise cameo bring out ringo star and they played helter skelter together under the los angeles sky oh that's a nice surprise a guest. Day. Wow. ringo waiting in the wings yeah. the whole time to pop on it was a pretty fun night so my endorsement is the Gutenberg Bible and the Beatles. <laughs> wow! How, I mean, how do I follow that? <laughs> Top that. Steve has to go back to the Lasco cave paintings to be more more basic and foundational. <laughs> and Michael Jackson and God, yeah. Um, so uh, I am going to endorse some um, an uh, essay by the kind of peerless. Uh, Andrew O'Hagan, or O'Hagan, I'm not sure which, um, who uh, often writes for the London Review of Books. A few weeks ago, I endorsed the Lillian Ross classic that's just been reissued by New York Review of Books Books uh, called uh, Picture, which is her fly-on-the-wall account of um, uh, watching as um, 
the director, John Huston, tried to bring the Red Badge of Courage to the screen, which he did, but then it was butchered by the studio and was destroyed as a work of popular art. Uh, but anyway, um, O'Hagan, 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 on the occasion of the reissue of Lillian Ross's book, uh, is able to retell the story of his relationship with Lillian Ross, who was this mid-century doyen of the New Yorker, I mean, truly one of the great uh, New Yorker writers of all time. And long before Gay Talese and Frank Sinatra, Lillian Ross was doing these extraordinary sort of work of art um, celebrity profiles. Uh, and um, he it's funny because he at once is getting at her genius as a writer and at the relationship that she had to her subjects. And like she was like Janet Malcolm. In fact, she knew Janet Malcolm and was in a kind of implicit and explicit dialogue with Janet Malcolm over the years about what your what a journalist's obligation is to their source and to the truth and to their reader and how these things come into conflict. Um, and she was famous for becoming quite close with her sources. Uh, and um, uh, and by the end of the piece, you realize that quite deftly what he's done in retelling the story of his personal relationship to Ross, who admired him and took him not under her wing exactly. He says, for a number of years, I was essentially her lapdog. But in describing that relationship, he demonstrates to you, he shows and doesn't really tell you what his relationship to a friend who is also a subject uh, and to his reader and the truth is, and it's just definitely done. It's a beautifully done essay and I, I highly recommend it. And it has such a great title. It's um, Not Enough Delilah's by Andrew, I'm going to say O'Hagan. O'Hagan? Anyone want to help me on that? <laughs> no, <laughs> you, aren't, you aren't going to say O'Hagan. You're going to say O'Hagan. O'Hagan? Uh, anyway, Not Enough Delilah's by Andrew O'Hagan um, in the uh, London Review of Books. And of course, we'll post the link to it. Uh, all right. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefestedslate.com. We love getting your emails. I can say that with um, sincerity. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. Yeah, I mean, I have to speak up just like in favor of the Cats trailer, the Cats film. Like, yes, it's a train wreck, but like what a glorious, delightful, exciting, fun romp of a train wreck.